Welcome to The Disability Track, a podcast that explores the lives of those with disabilities and long-term health conditions in the UK. Okay, welcome to The Disability Track. This is our fifth episode. I'm Wadaley. And I'm Steph. And we are nice and chatty today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sorry. (laughs) How have you been, Steph? Like, let's let's do a quick roundup. <laughs> I think normally I would just be like, yeah, no, everything's fine, everything's great. Mm. Uh, but like, I don't think that's necessarily the healthiest thing to do. You're doing a yeah. podcast about long-term health conditions, and you're not being honest that sometimes mm. it really sucks. Mm-hmm. So I'm not doing very good at the moment. In fact, I've actually been off work with it, which is the first time that's ever happened. Mm. so but then sometimes you do need that break you really do yeah it's given me a chance to like look after myself and try and get a bit better before going back into work but it's very kind of overwhelming which is why I'm quieter than usual like this never happens just you have to wait the kind of every month that I have a mental breakdown <laughs> just have to get the get the date right yeah exactly like when I finally have a mental breakdown that's when I actually shut up how are you my love my angel yeah, I'm good. I've had I was a bit ill a couple of weeks ago, and I had a bit of an exhausting week this week. But like I've been using the weekend to recover, and it's been so nice. That's good. I'm glad. Yeah, it's been good. So I'm going to move on to the first section of the disability track, which is the headlines. And so, do you know Salma Blair, the actress? No. So she's I didn't know her before either, but she's acted in films like Legally Blonde and Cruel Intentions. And she recently opened up about her experience of having multiple sclerosis. Oh, okay. Which is an incurable condition and that affects the brain or the spinal cord. It causes balance, vision, muscle problems, and it affects around 100,000 people in the UK. I don't know if you've seen that video. She's walked, she walked the Vanity Fair red, Oscars red carpet and she had this customised walking cane. Oh, wow. It was really, yeah, it was really cool. It looked super expensive. I can't remember what designer it was, but it was just really, really extra. And she spoke to Good Morning America about it later. The interview is amazing, and I'm sure many people with chronic illnesses can relate to what she says. She describes the pressure that you put on yourself to protect those around you, and also the relief that you might feel after being diagnosed, after having months or years of symptoms. And also, just like what you were saying, Steph, the the effort that you put into feeling okay. Mm. It's just amazing, and her speech is slightly slurred because of the MS and she explains why that is so she goes into detail about the symptoms and how it affects her child. I was in an MS flare-up and didn't know and I was giving everything to seem normal which I can definitely relate to when it comes to work, hanging out with friends, being with family. I think that's definitely the way I am but she's promised to keep acting despite her diagnosis and she also wants to create a disabled friendly fashion line which is something we talked about during the last That's episode. That's so cool. Mm, yeah. She told Vanity Fair that it can still be chic. You shouldn't have to sacrifice style, which <laughs> is true. That is a word if there ever was one. That is a very, that's very good. So I really enjoy that. I, d- I don't know who she is from Legally Blonde though. What was her name again? Salma Blair. She might be the mum. No, she's the, um, She's originally the uh, antagonist. She's engaged to the guy that... uh... Oh my god, no way! Yeah, I can't remember. I've forgotten all the names. Okay. It's her. Oh, she's super cool. 
is very cool. My next story is about a drug called Orcambi. So there's been a public hearing on the availability of Orcambi, which is a potentially life-extending drug for people with cystic fibrosis. Now, cystic fibrosis is a genetic disorder that affects mostly the lungs, but it can also affect the pancreas, the liver, the kidneys and the intestine. And it can cause issues such as difficulty of breathing and coughing up mucus as a result of frequent lung infections. The company that owns Orcambi is called Vertex. It's an American company and it's priced at over £100,000 per patient. And it's currently not available on the NHS because the NHS has kind of reached a deadlock in talks with Vertex. Vertex refused to lower the price, so there's been campaigners, parents of people with CF, and people with CF themselves who want the government to make use of something called crown use. Crown use allows the government to override a patent in the national interest, so that would allow the NHS to buy a affordable, generic version of the drug. But it didn't really go that way in the hearing. So the hearing found that the the um, CEO of Vertex said that the price that they're offering the NHS is a 90% discount on that agreed in other countries like Ireland and France. Um, Ireland and France have already done deals with them and have patients on or can be. But Andrew Sellis, who is on the committee, basically was like, no, but France and Ireland have paid huge prices, but they're now seeking discounts with you. And so the negotiations have continued, but I just can't imagine what it must be like for people with cystic fibrosis, family members, to essentially not be able to get this drug because of politics and economics. And to have a drug that you know you can see in the media could potentially really better someone's life and extend someone's life it's just the way i guess it's the way that the drug industry works right no especially if it's an american drug yeah um because yeah. i was literally for some reason i was thinking about this today this is what i think about apparently um <laughs> if, like kind of the idea of big pharma because i don't really know what it means mm. but i think a big part of that is because it's not as big of a thing in the uk because no, american drug companies are like they they are in the uk of course we tend to use like generic brands if we go through the nhs but like mm-hmm. in the us you'll see adverts for different medicines yeah like on TV. yeah and then they have all the like side effects of this maybe throwing up blindness death mm-hmm. heart attacks like mm-hmm. and you're just like great i really don't want to get this uh but i think it's the corporations in america they do treat it business first health second yeah which i guess in some ways that's how it should be i mean i personally don't think that yeah do you think i don't know could we ever nationalize the drug industry could it ever be like that could it be like an arm of the nhs well i mean the nhs (laughs) isn't getting any help now at the moment as it is but i just i feel like that's part of I don't know, because I know nothing <laughs> about how yeah. the drugs industry works, pharmaceutical industry even. Um, yeah, it's probably the reason why things like this, the situations like this, because it's not very accessible. It's not, and like I just kind of, I rock up with my prescription, take what they yeah, get. Yeah, get your meds, rattle yeah. away. me with my, where are yeah, it's my week planner of my 3,000 <laughs> tablets I need to take. There is, I don't know if you've heard of the book called Big Pharma by Ben Goldie. I think I've heard of it, yeah, I've just never... Yeah, <laughs> it came out in 2012. The, the The long title is Bad Pharma. Wait, Bad Pharma, sorry, not Big Pharma. The title is Bad Pharma, How Drug Companies Mislead Doctors and Harm Patients. 
and it's by a British physician actually. Really? But yeah, that's that's always been on my reading list. It's just it's just a very big book, so it's kind of off putting. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just like, to, oh, sounds to too it. serious. <laughs> like, yeah, oh, they need I'd to make a film think, of it. Don't don't like yeah. it. <laughs> So yeah, someone wants to like just give me the crib notes or turn it into a Netflix. Give me a PowerPoint presentation, but no more than three bullet points per slide. Oh, you can have an extra (laughs) bullet point per transition. Give me Star Wipe and we're fine. Yeah, Star Wipe. (laughs) So that yeah, that's the that's the conclusion. That's Steph's conclusion. Uh, All things can be (laughs) answered with Star Wipe. Thank you. I had the pleasure of speaking to Catherine Dean. Catherine is a senior health sciences lecturer at the University of East Anglia, which is in Norwich, and she has a number of long-term conditions. She's really passionate about accessibility, and she's been called an accessibility ambassador. So I gave her a ring and got to the bottom of what that means exactly. So my name's Dr. Catherine Dean. I'm a senior lecturer in research here at the University of East Anglia, and I'm also, well, self-styled their access ambassador. On my research side, I work with people with long-term conditions and help them manage them better. So day-to-day boring stuff like taking your pills right, sticking to the diet, getting the right sort of exercises, that sort of stuff. And then on the Access Ambassador side, I've improved the accessibility of the campus and we're starting to get noticed for that. So I'm starting to improve the accessibility of the outside world as well. And could you tell me a bit about yourself and the conditions that you have? So I'm a wheelchair user. I have an electric wheelchair, which is totally lovely. Call it my chariot. Should have Boudicca yeah. wheels on to get to get me through the, the students at times, but uh, it is totally lovely. Um, I have, my main disability is a functional movement disorder, which nobody's ever heard of, but basically means that if you have something like multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's, you have hardware faults, cells actually die bits can be seen on scans. I have a software fault. It all looks normal on the scans, but it functions very interestingly. So uh, my movement control system blue screens at times and gets interesting. So that's the major one. Um, I've also got slight visual impairments and things like that. And interestingly, one of my latest uh, things that I've got is that I'm increasingly face blind. So I don't recognize people, which can be very embarrassing. So did most of these conditions develop through your life or were you born of any of them? Uh, No, I I started with my movement disorder when I was 28 and also got my visual impairment at the same time. Um, And can you tell me a bit about your research journey? Because I noticed that you started in one specific area of health and then ended up in a completely different one. Like I say, I I got my disabilities when I was 28. So prior to that, I got my PhD and did my first postdoc in immunology. So I was looking at how the body recognizes a bacterial infection called chlamydia and sometimes gets confused and then causes you arthritis because it gets misdirected. Um, So I was a lab rat and worked in the labs, but being in the labs is really not compatible if you suddenly start shaking without control. Uh, you know, biological, chemical, physical and radioactive hazards going all over the place, not a good combination. So I had to move fields. And so I moved fields into movement disorders because the consultant in movement disorders could see past my shakes to the fact that I did still have a brain and that I might be quite useful to him. 
So we started looking at best treatments for Parkinson's disease and worked our way through a lot of those and then identified from survey work what people were wanting from uh, physiotherapy and occupational therapy in particular. And then we're gradually working on medication adherence as well. Um, and we've looked in a number of other conditions, long-term conditions, all have very similar issues going on with them. Okay. You can tell just by the way you speak about your work that academia is very important to you. But what impact can it have on the average disabled person's life, someone that isn't academic? So when I started doing my research back in 2000, relatively few people with Parkinson's could get access to physiotherapy and occupational therapy. Because we highlighted the need and its value, we pretty much doubled the rate of people getting access to those therapies in about five years. So that was very swift. I mean, it did help that the the labour agenda was also helpful to us on that thing. But you had to have the evidence to prove the need and to prove its worth. So we did that sort of stuff. Um, You may not see it directly, but my work will inform the NICE guidelines, which informs your consultant or your GP about what drugs they should try first and then second and then third, uh, what therapies they should be offering you, what other services they should be considering, those sorts of things. My stuff does tend to inform into that sort of work. Okay, so it's kind of like an area that has a really hidden, silent impact on people's lives. Yeah, very much. Academic research, it it sounds very ivory-towered and all the rest of it, but actually a lot of what we do is really quite practical and pragmatic and actually does have impact into services and how they are designed and what is offered and what sort of things we think are effective or not for people. Okay, that's really interesting. So you also describe yourself as an accessibility ambassador. What exactly does that mean? How could you sum that up? So I was at the Women of the World Festival here in Norwich, and I was helping them make sure that that festival was as accessible as possible. And they gave me this lovely title of Access Ambassador. And I thought, wow, that's brilliant. That so sums up what I'm wanting to do. I'm wanting to go in there and diplomatically, to one degree or another, persuade people that it's worth making their facilities, their services, their goods more accessible for people because I want as the same as everybody else I want to be able to go out to the pub I want to be able to buy that nice dress I want to be able to try those shoes on I want to be able to go to the park those sorts of things and unless it's accessible well I'm going to get stuck right at the first barrier so I started taking on trying to improve the access for myself personally at the university. And I got a few small changes done, but then we got a new vice chancellor and he's very brave and he holds open forums where staff can turn up with any question they like. And I put my hand up and said, you know what, this campus, it's not particularly accessible and you're not even using your in-house expertise. And brave man that he was, he said, let's have a coffee. So we did in one of his brand new buildings, which was fabulous because I was able to go, oh, lovely front door, powered door, level access. But (laughs) if I needed somebody with me in the lift to press the buttons, they'd have to be darn slim. If I wanted to get into the lecture theatre, I'd have to ask somebody else to open those really heavy doors. 
I wouldn't even be able to get onto that stage because it's not accessible. The lighting here is a bit bright. The signage isn't great. You know, it was yada, yada, yada. The usual things which if you're a person with disabilities, you look at and go, oh, oh, they should have so much done so much more. And he went, you mean I've just spent millions on a building that doesn't really work? And I went, um, yeah, sorry, you did. And he went, can you solve that for me? I said, yeah, I can. So we repurposed a budget that was already there, £300,000 a year to improve accessibility. But that group that were sorting that out, they got an external access uh, guy who came in, did an audit, gave them a list of jobs and off they went. And that's all they did. They didn't talk to the people actually using the facilities to say, what's the priority? What else does need to be done? Because the stuff that's on the audit isn't necessarily all the stuff that needs to be done. So, you know, the audit was done, I think, to Schedule M of the building code, which is fairly basic when it comes to accessibility. That is level front door with power, accessible toilet, a lift. There you go. You've hit the access guide. And we went, um, you know what? We need to be able to get around these buildings. And they went, uh? And we said, really heavy doors. We need a lot of power doors. We need more lifts. We need more accessible toilets. And that's what we've done. We've doubled the number of powered doors in this campus. So we now have over 400 of them. <laughs> that's amazing. Over 400. Mm, yeah. I mean, it sounds fabulous until you realize we have over 100 buildings in our campus. So you can imagine ah. spread out. Yeah. But we do try and focus them into the key zones and every areas. It's shifted the accessibility of the campus so much. I used to go around every day with a sore arm and a sore shoulder because I've dislocated that shoulder a few times and pushing open heavy doors all day really made my shoulder sore. I no longer have a sore shoulder. Well, that's brilliant to hear. And still doubling the amount of doors, that's a huge achievement. Yes, so, and, yeah, and you should, we've... You should definitely proud of that. And we got a, a new um, lift into the student union so the top floor is fully accessible uh, because a lot of the time you get the issue where well it's accessible by lift but it's not a fire safe lift so you've got to be able to transfer to an evac chair in the event of fire and if you can't well you can't use that zone we you know have this idea that all students should be able to use all spaces in the student union not an, a too radical an idea i hope and so we put in a brand new lift there that cost quarter of a million pounds. You spoke about money there, quarter of a million pounds. Yeah. And the vice chancellor also mentioned, you know, I spent all this money and it's not accessible. Yeah. How do you, when you're approaching like organisations or businesses or when they talk to you about accessibility, how do you say to them spending this much money will be worth it? It depends on where they are. If we're starting at the mm. ground up, I go, I have a design guide for you. And it probably won't add very much to the entire build cost. It might add a small bit and pieces, but it's not going to be anything major in the, the total budget for the building. But if we're going into an old building and it's, oh, we've got to refurbish, then I've got some ideas. Or if it's just, we've got an old building, can you help us just make it a bit more accessible? It's sort of, okay, priorities here are, let's sort out that step. Let's sort out that lighting. Let's sort out that signage those sorts of things so it's it's often a case of finding out where they are what their budget is and looking at it and going okay the really key things that are acting as barriers here are a b and c you've got the money for a you can do it quickly let's get that done b is going to take a bit more time c well that's when we have a budget for it so let's go 
fundraise for it, think about it for the next grant we put in for, etc. So it's it's working with people very pragmatically, but also particularly when you can get in at the ground level is emphasizing to guys, don't say, oh, but we could always retrofit it. We could always put it in later because I go, guys, it costs you three times the amount minimum to retrofit access. Yeah, so it's about being smart. It's about being smart. It's about grabbing the low-hanging fruit. It's about sometimes using really low-tech solutions. So one of the things I'm always recommending is Ewan's Guide, which is Disability Access Guide for People, TripAdvisor for People with Disabilities. Fabulous, fabulous site. E-U-A-N-S, by the way. That's how you spell Ewan. Um, they have um, a set of cards that you can slide onto the cord, the red cord in bathrooms, in accessible bathrooms. And it just says, don't tie me up. It's needed, the, the red cord must hang down all the way to the ground so that if somebody was to fall over with a disability, they'd be able to summon help. So it seems like if you're approaching a company organisation about accessibility, you can need to know your stuff, you need to research and also not back down when they give you that first response. Very much. And also appeal to their better values they're the ones that have got on the website we wish to provide a service to the community we want to provide goods that all the entire community can use all this sort of stuff you go right your website says this your values are that am i not part of the community by the way i'm 20 percent of the community by the way that's quite a lot of purple pounds that you're turning away if you're a restaurant, you're not just turning me away. You're turning me and 10 of my friends away. I did a bit of research and I found that um, Chester in 2008 became the first British city to win the European Commission's Access City Award. Mm. The Guardian mentioned that its elevated walkways are accessible with ramps, lifts and an escalator, while the council's regeneration strategy prioritises accessibility and new developments. Yeah. And like cities especially have been criticised for not being accessible to disabled people. Do you see other British cities following Chess's example? Do you, do you feel that change happening? I hope so. But the challenge is there. And I do think that the social zeitgeist is moving in that direction. So I think that eventually it will shift because the really cool thing is, is when you talk to people who are able-bodied and you point out these are the problems I have with just getting around on an everyday basis. This is how much planning it takes to get down to London and back. All of these sorts of day-to-day -day things for us wheelchair users, etc. They go, oh, but I thought we'd solve this. Oh, but I thought it was fully accessible. Oh, oh my Lord, that's not acceptable. And I think what that message is getting across to companies and to councils that no, this isn't acceptable anymore. And that we do want the whole of our community to be able to use all of our facilities on an equal basis. And it's gradually shifting. And it's, it's taking advantage of those small steps that you can make to make a big difference. Oh, I think that's a really good finishing message, that is. Thanks again for coming on and just being so eloquent <laughs> and really thoughtful answers. No problem. Where can people find you, like on social media or the work that you do? Uh, so I'm on the university website and things like that. And I can be contacted on k.deane at uea.ac.uk. That's the best way of contacting me is by email. I do have a blog, but it's terribly out of date. <laughs> Thank you.
Sue, should we skip to the pop culture segment? Yeah, let's drag ourselves. <laughs> Go on then, you Because that's what we're doing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just made me laugh. Self-roasting. To keep us, to keep us grounded. So for the pop culture segment, I'm going to do a cop out. Well, it's not really a cop out. It's I think I think when you make a mistake, I think the best thing you can do is literally stand, put your hands up, and be like, "I've been a bit of a shit," and um, just mm-hmm. deal with the situation. So <laughs> basically, the best way to explain this is: with Daly and I have this friend that she's done loads of really cool things for um, like disability awareness, and she we because you contacted her didn't you and be like would you do an interview with us for it and she was like yeah sure she's like so i'm deaf remember so have you got a transcript and we daily told me and i was like oh my god (laughs) yeah that's how i felt when she said like how i still think it's we're so ridiculous that both of us said oh yeah we should ask her and didn't mm. think about the fact that our podcast isn't accessible <laughs> to deaf people. Yeah. Which, if you're going with like the kind of classic idea of disability, like deaf is one of the bigger ones. Mm-hmm. We've talked about deafness. We interviewed. I know. Really? Yeah, it actually makes me like cringe. Which is exactly why I'm being like, no, we need to like state publicly uh, we were fools. <laughs> yeah, definitely, and also like just make like you know. Everyone should have transcripts, really. Yeah. Even if you don't have a disability podcast. Yes. Yeah. We should have thought of it as a podcast thing anyway. Um, Yeah, definitely. Especially a disability one. But I think it also goes to show, like, you can try and be aware of these problems and Mm. think that you're aware and then realise, actually. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, yeah. So from now on, we're going to have transcripts. Yes. Yeah. So we're going to have transcripts up on our website and can read along see what we've had to say our podcast should be about accessibility first yeah and like if there is a way that it's not accessible to you in some way please let us know yeah because we we want to like work on that yeah but then i also i say that and i realize well if ellie had listened to it before she wouldn't have been able to tell us yeah so i thought for the media thing we'll just talk about kind of accessibility of podcasts Mm. in general really so I have a friend who, they're not deaf, mm-hmm. but they have audio processing problems, which is also really common with people with autism. What do you mean by audio processing problems? So the, they just, they struggle processing sound. So one of the common things is background noise sounds oh, louder yes, okay. than like voices, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes like a second for them to kind of hear mm-hmm. words. Which I'm actually looking into getting tested for it. But (laughs) it's so when I watch, I watch things with them online and we don't do voice chat because they can't process watching the thing and hearing me talk at the same time. Okay, I get you. And they have to watch subs with everything, Mm -hmm. which I watch subs with everything as well. Yeah, I really struggle because I can't hear the words properly. Yeah. (laughs) And I have to check I've heard what I've heard. Um, so again, like they're not deaf, but it wasn't accessible, and you don't really think about it, mm-hmm. especially for me, who I have like no physical disabilities. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to forget. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And it shouldn't be. I need to be reminded. Like tweet me, like Steph, you ignorant slut. Oh. Like <laughs> change it up today. Yeah. 
Oh, gosh. <laughs> but yeah, it is kind of sad that podcasts are becoming such a popular media platform, yet they're locking just a huge percentage of the population out. Yeah, we contributed to that. Yeah, yeah, which is really embarrassing and disappointing. But we are I do think in a lot of ways, though, it is more accessible. What do you mean? Because, I mean, if you look at it, kind of the predecessor... Is that the right word? Predecessor? Um, We're going to go with it. Yeah. <laughs> predecessor to the podcast is radio shows. Mm. Now, how many radio shows do you know that have a transcript? Zero, probably. Exactly. Quite a lot of the podcasts that I've come across have got them. Really? Um, well, I came... I don't listen to that many. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I don't I have an attention span. Yeah, yeah but <laughs> if you come across transcripts, that's great because of, I don't think I have. I, I, there was really? one. There's one website that I did. Also, um, some... The, I can't remember what the names are, um, but they are um, deaf, two deaf influencers. And they tweeted just saying like, hey, like, you know, do any podcasts have transcripts? Because we don't really listen to them because we're deaf. And then some, there was about like five people who commented underneath just like, yeah, 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 we do, we do, we do, we do. So I went on their website and checked them out. But otherwise I haven't seen any. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I think... Because of the internet, a lot of things are getting a bit more accessible. Um, for example, a lot of YouTube videos are subtitled now. Yes, yeah, I've noticed that. Which I'm kind of, even myself, I'm a bit like, oh, thank goodness. Because mm. I struggle to hear a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, just, like, process the voices. Um, I haven't got any hearing impairments. Yeah. And I'm trying to think, like, there's loads of, like, new kind of forms of media that are getting more accessible like radio tv doesn't often have like subtitles mm-hmm. and sometimes the subtitles for tv are, i don't know i haven't used subtitles for tv for a while but i remember when i used to they'd sometimes be very slow or wrong yeah i don't know if it's still yeah. like that it was anyway i don't actually watch tv and the other thing is just like with subtitles on videos and stuff you can change it to what you see better what do you mean so like um you can change the colour, you can change the size, ah, you can change the okay. font. Um, my sister, for example, has Erlen syndrome, which is it sounds really like, ooh, that's serious. It's not. She just she struggles seeing black uh black text on a white background. Yeah, okay. And she struggles with quite a lot of colours. It's only really green that she can see. Alright. Oh, she says that the white stands out stands out more. Is it just so, so it's very for, bright? Yeah, the white is just overwhelming she could see that more than she could see the black words Mm. so she has these like plastic like cellophane things that go over the top so she can read better yes i remember those i remember some kids having those at school yeah it's Mm. quite common with like um dyslexia yes yeah as well yeah my dyslexic so so for people like that that helps a lot people with that you know have hearing problems but also visual impairments Mm. that helps yeah i would imagine so I do think that there are a lot of positives to the internet and like as I said, like podcasts aren't very accessible yeah. all the time. For me, I, I just don't have a concentration span. Um I have listened to obviously I do podcasts, so of course I've listened to them, mm. but Do you feel like podcasts are good when it comes to attention span? Because with radio well anyway, with radio the way it used to be, the radio show would be on and then if when it's finished it's gone but with podcasts and the fact that radio shows are often you can catch up on them they're on demand now 
you can like stop when you've when your attention span is waning and then start again yeah i think that i know a few people that benefit Mm. from that for me personally if something is audio Mm -hmm. that isn't music i can't pay attention to it okay i see it's like if people tell me verbal instructions i'm i'm useless i won't remember them but then concentration span is one of the main things that go with mental health problems yeah yeah okay is there anything else you wanted to say about accessibility disability no i don't think so. just the main message that we suck but we're making it better yeah i think it's just kind of i mean even since like doing the podcast i find i pay a lot more attention to accessibility now yeah same and i go out of my way to like read articles and stuff like that and i've also noticed that twitter's disability community is thriving it is live it really is it's great like i've seen the accounts that like we're following on our one and it's like it's cool it's really cool yeah they're doing some really like good say stuff. what you want about the internet but it's not some really good things yeah for like 100 percent Thanks for listening to episode five. You can find us on Twitter at Disability Tea. And if you fancy even some feedback, which we'd love, you can do it wherever you listen to this podcast. So Apple, ACAS, Spotify.